This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Jason Morgan, the best-selling author of A Dog Called Hope, a story of how the special operations combat weatherman found himself paralyzed during a mission and was later rescued by a special service dog. I'll also talk about why Jason is a person to admire and emulate during our coronavirus crisis. And now, The Nexus. Jason Morgan is the author of A Dog Called Hope, a wounded warrior and the service dog who saved him. This best-selling book chronicles the journey Staff Sergeant Morgan took as an Air Force combat meteorologist in a Special Forces unit and how that led to becoming acquainted with a most unique companion, a Labrador named Nepal. Jason Morgan, welcome to the Nexus. Uh, Thank you, Art. Thanks for having me. You know, this was a remarkable book. It was heartrending, inspirational, and often very witty. Can you share with us the dynamics of your story? Like, how did you come to be a combat weatherman, and where did that ta- job take you? So, at first, my my career is that I wanted to be a pilot, and so starting off in the reserves, they had weather open, which was a, a tough field to be in, but I thought it helped me as a pilot. And once I got into um, into the reserve unit, Air Force Reserve, as a as a weather guy, I I liked it, and it it was challenging, but it was kind of dull. I'm I'm kind of one of those uh, thrill seekers or adrenaline junkies, and I found out about um, this combat weather team, which there's only about 72 in the Air Force that do this job, so it's um, and it's very hard to get into. So basically, what that is is it's you know you're a meteorologist doing weather for special operations, so not only you have to be you know, weather forecaster, but you also have to be a special operations guy and you have to be, you know, when you um, do weather for um, special operations teams like the SEAL teams or Air Force or the uh, Army Special Forces, you have to do everything that they can do. So it's um, kind of tough. You have to be nerdy enough to get through the, the weather school, but be dumb enough to jump out of airplanes and <laughs> do that sort of thing. And, you know, it just seemed a job that seemed very challenging. And I, I got into it, absolutely loved it. I, I've never been so challenged in any job I've had. It's not only, you know, the, you know, you just have to be not only completely fit, but really be knowledgeable about the weather because, you know, you get the, basically the weather, the mission, you know, they come to me with a mission and they go by the mission parameters of what I give the weather. So basically using weather as an asset. So I'm going to tell them how the weather is going to hurt or, or help the mission. And, you know, when you have helicopters and assets involved and people jumping, if you get it wrong, it's, you can have, it can be uh, pretty bad. You can have fatalities or, or loss of uh, very expensive equipment or just the mission just completely go wrong. So anyway, I got into it. I did it for, for 10 years until um, my injury, but, but I loved it. It took me to a lot of places I didn't want to see, but, you know, a lot of places that, that I absolutely loved. And let's talk about that a little bit. So it's um, it's obviously covered in great detail in the book, but what's the thumbnail sketch about your injury and where that took you? Sure. So I was, this was in uh, June of 1999. I was in South America doing a counter narcotics mission. And during that time, our vehicle, um, our driver was trying to, um, you know, encounter a dangerous situation, trying to avoid, he, he went off the road and the vehicle 
flip numerous times. And um, since I was hanging out of the vehicle with my weapon protecting um, the six or our rear where we had a vehicle coming up on us, uh, I flipped out of the vehicle, then it rolled over the top of me, leaving me face down in shallow water with a broken back. Um, that was the, you know, the, my biggest injury is a broken back, but also had um, just a lot of water. So I was also drowning at the time. Those were the most severe injuries. I had um, several under, several other minor injuries as well, which uh, kept me in a hospital for uh, many, many months. Um, in fact, I was uh, in a coma for about two months before before I finally woke. Hmm. Incredible. Um, and was it in your recovery period that you were acquainted with Nepal? How did that come about? Um, no, that was several years down the line, and which was good because I really I needed time to. Um, shortly after my injury, um, I had three young children. They were one, three, and four at the time. And a few years after my injury, my wife at the time ended up leaving. And so not only leaving me, but the boys also. So at first, I not only had to learn how to live my life from a wheelchair with everything else I had going on, but I had to be a father to, you know, three young boys, infants, you know, by myself. So it's, it's probably good that didn't happen right away because, you know, I really had to focus on my kids and, and being a father first. And it was a few years down the line when I finally started um, kind of getting out and about and learning how to live a life from a wheelchair and kind of do the things that I wanted to do. And it was that event for um, uh, Challenge Air, they fly because of disabilities. And since I, I mentioned earlier, I was a pilot, I learned how to fly with hand controls. And during one of these events that we um, actually let the, we teach them basics of flying and then they get to fly for a few minutes. We take them up and they get to fly for a few minutes. And, you know, it just does wonders for, you know, what they can do and, you know, think, thinking, wow, I could fly an airplane, no telling what else I can do, you know, and it gives them a lot of confidence. And, but it was during one of those events, Canine Companions for Independence had a booth set up. And that's where I found out about these um, absolutely amazing dogs. And, you know, it was from there that I immediately said, this is, I could really use one of these canines. And, and that's when I started the application process. Were you, so this was several, this was in 99 that you met Nepal or years later? It was years later. 99 was my injury. It was around 2000. Um, it was about 10 years later when I met Nepal. I'm trying to like trace this. So at that point, how important, not important, but how um, prevalent was the service dog industry at that point were you on the spear of this or were you was this becoming in vogue around that time um i'm just trying to wonder how much of an early adopter you were in terms of a service dog well no i mean i i consider myself kind of on the on the uh, on the spear end on the on the very beginning of it they had you know i always knew you know you had dogs for um, people with hearing and visual disabilities, but not for service dogs. I thought you, um, I just didn't even know they, they existed for, um, you know, paraplegics and quadriplegics and, and, and injuries like that. So it was, it was all new to me. In fact, when, you know, I didn't, when I saw the, the booth, they had canine companions, their booth set up. I didn't think I'd be able to qualify because I just didn't think I, I met the standards. So uh, this was all real new to me and, and, and I know from other people, like when I first, you know, got in Nepal and I went to places, it was 
um, new brothers. I was pretty much one of the only few people that, that had a service dog in, around. So interesting, interesting. So that's, so you were at the beginnings of it all. And, um, at first were you, obviously you said that when you, you saw this, it, it was intriguing to you, but was there a doubt in terms of the efficiency or the viability of a dog coming into your life and actually making a difference? Well, I'm not sure if I ever um, thought about that because when I first went to the booth, they were telling me what these dogs could do. Um, I was like, man, that could be, that could be very, very helpful because, you know, basically, you know, I'm sure you maybe can't imagine, but going from jumping out of airplanes to a wheelchair and you're, you're so hindered in everything you do. And, and I still am. And, you know, the biggest thing you want to do is gain your independence. And so immediately I saw the things that this dog could do for me and, and gain more independence. I was, um, you know, I, I was right from the beginning, I was extremely excited and, and, and we're just already thinking about all the ways that this dog could help me in my life every day in my everyday activities. Like what? Tell me some things that um, I think a lot of people are still unclear about the role that service dogs can play. Um, obviously, you, you touched upon when people are, are visually impaired, but when those who are not, um, what what are some of the skills or uh, ta- uh, tasks that a dog can do? Sure. So, uh, so Nepal... I actually had to go to class for two weeks to learn what the dog could do and to learn the right commands because I believe it's around, um, they teach around 50 commands that you have to learn it and not to use all of them, but just in everyday life, the biggest thing that, that, um, Nepal did for me was retrieve objects off the ground. So, you know, being in a wheelchair, I use my arms to, to push, to roll around. So I, I never have any free hands to hold things. So a lot of times I set stuff on my lap and I'm, dropping still dropping stuff 20 years later all the time and so uh nepal i would like drop him my keys i tell him to get my keys and he grab them if um i could get close to an object and i tell him to get and he'd grab the object closest to me but there are other times for instance if i'm um, not in my chair let's say if i transferred over to the couch or something like that and the remote was on the other side of the couch so instead of transferring back into my wheelchair rolling the other side of the couch or maybe having to transfer on that side of the couch so i could reach it and then doing it all over again and transfer back on the couch. I just say, Nepal, get the remote. And he would pretty much, he knew, he knew what it was. So he'd find the remote and grab it for me. He would grab my phone if it was ringing. So a big thing is retrieving objects. He also can pull me. So I do a lot of traveling and speaking events. So I'm in the airport a lot and I got, you know, luggage, you know, on my lap going from down the terminal. And so I can grab Nepal's harness and I give him the commands. And he can pull me, so I don't have to use my arms. And I steer with my wrist. I can steer him, you know, left or right, or slow him down or speed him up. Um, other things they do is shut doors for you, um, open doors for you. For mm-hmm. instance, if you're if you're going into a door and it opens, you know, away from you. So when you go through the door, you have to like clear the door, turn back around, and try to push it shut. And it's hard to reach, but uh, Nepal will open and close doors for you. You can get objects out of the refrigerator um, <laughs> cabinets for you and bring them to you. It's um, like he'll get my, sometimes I can't reach the clothes in the wash machine in the dryer. So he'll get the clothes out of the wash, hand it to me, I'll put them in the dryer. And, you know, I, I he hasn't learned how to fold the clothes yet, but we're, that's <laughs> something we're, we're working on a little bit. And it would, 
only time. These dogs are amazing. Huh. Um, there's, um, I'm sure I'm, it could turn light switches on and off. So let's say if I'm already in my bed or something or, or can't reach a switch because sometimes there's stuff in front of it. You can turn a light switch on and off. It's, um, it's, it's just amazing. And, you know, this goes on and on. Um, mm-hmm. they can, it, it is, it's, I, I was amazed. In fact, everyone that sees my dog in, in action is, is amazed as well. So, but yet there were some instances in the book where there was pushback. Um, some people are, if I recall, were not thrilled with, Nepal's presence. Can you mention a couple of those instances? You, you like specific examples? You want yes. to sure. So, um, as you, as I told you earlier, you know, this is when dogs, you didn't see dogs around, service dogs around very often. And um, I remember there was one time I went into uh, 7-Eleven. I think I was coaching my son's football game. We were all done. We we're just going to get a couple of drinks, um, some sodas or chocolate milk or whatever you know we got and you know real quick thing so we we went into the store and i you know i had my nepal with me there and the and i was already almost to where the drinks were to grab them and going up to the counter and and i heard the guy yelling behind me that's like no dogs allowed no dogs or no pets allowed and i said well this is and usually i use that time to educate them because they just don't know i'm like just trust me this dog is allowed here he's certified um but sometimes they just don't want to hear it. They think it's, you know, their store and, and I don't want dogs in here. And this, um, this guy, I was, I was already basically to the counter when we started talking. I'm like, you know what? I'm just let me pay for it and I'll be out of here. And he's like, no, I'm not serving you. You need to get the dog out of here. And I told him these dogs are loud. And, you know, for sometimes it's for me, like just to go to another store to load my wheelchair and my truck and get in my truck and stuff, drive somewhere else. And, I love my wheelchair and do the same thing again is, and it's like 20 or 30 minutes, right? And mm. I was right there at the counter. So, you know, I was a little bit frustrated. He just went, but, it, you know, he's like, no, you're going to have to leave. I'm like, and usually I'm not like this. I, you, I try to use that time, as I said, to educate them, but and this guy wasn't very happy anyway. And so he goes, I'm going to, he goes, no, you need to leave my store. And I said, you know, if you want me to leave, call the police, but this dog is allowed here. He does stuff for me. And, you know, sometimes they just, they just refuse. They just refuse. It, it's not like that anymore, but at the beginning, it was like that quite a bit. There were several times I go into a restaurant and they tell me this dog is not allowed. And they're like, you know, we don't serve pets here. I'm like, well, it's okay. My dog's not eating anyway. I'm just try to kind of go on. But, you know, there's, but it's, it's much better now. But usually once, usually I can clear it up. Usually it's pretty easy to talk to the manager or something. Usually they understand, they realize, or that just the employee doesn't know. But, um, you know, I still get some of that today, but it's, um, it's frustrating sometimes. You think nowadays people would know, you know, that, that service dogs are allowed to go anywhere that I can go. Um, but it's just, um, you know, but it's, like I said, it's getting better every time. But yeah, I, I still run in a few instances every once in a while. But like I said, usually it's, you know, I just tell them this service dog, that's what it does. And, you know, when they talk to their manager or whatever, they realize it's like, oh, yeah, she's allowed in here. And, and usually it's usually it's pretty good. Not all the time, though. What would you say? Obviously, there was some it's been some time. Obviously, it's been two decades since your injury and and um, the fallout from that. Uh, how would you say your mental and spiritual health has 
improved over that time? Has it has it been a, a, a situation of improvement? Has it been zigzagging or just a constant rise? What what what's the trajectory of of how you've been dealing with things? Well, so um, it's it's definitely been on a rise in the twenty years. I mean, I'm I'm so much further along spiritually and mentally than than I was twenty years ago. But you know, I've also had some you know some really big setbacks too. And you know, when you when it first happens, it's kind of you know it's all new to you. Right now, you're just kind of concentrating on what my life is going to be like, and it's different. But I think once that sets in, that you're not going to walk again. It's uh, it's devastating, and, and as I told you, I went through a um, a divorce too, and it was some really really dark times, you know. And especially in the first five years, in fact, the first seven years, I spent three and a half years in the hospital, and one of those was almost a year at a time, and that that was really tough. But you know, as, as I basically I had to find like a a sense of purpose again. Once I found like a sense of purpose. That is really what helped my life, you know, just improve. And once you, when you, when you find purpose in life, that's what, you know, gives you hope and, and different things. And so, you know, but through that time, I actually started walking again. And, and, you know, I was walking with these long legged braces with a walker, even though the doctor said I'd never walk again. And, you know, and then I'd, I'd get through that. And then, um, I had a, uh, a bad infection on my leg and I had to get my leg amputated. And, you know, I know that was about four or five years ago. I could talk about that for just a minute. Actually, yeah. I was training for a marathon at the time, just to give you an example. So the doctor um, came to me and, he, and my, I had this really bad blister and they did some MRIs. I thought they were just going to do a, a skin a surgery and fix it and I'll be good to go in three or four days. Anyway, the doctor came back, the surgeon, he says, this is much worse than we thought. Your bone is infected. You know, this is what Christopher died from, same thing. And he says... So really, you have two options. You can try to keep your leg, but you might spend over a year in the hospital, and we still might not save it. But my suggestion is to amputate your leg. So I'll give you about, you know, ten minutes to decide because we need to 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 work on this. And and thank goodness I had Nepal with me in the room because um just um just having that dog there, you there twenty four seven. You can almost like read each other's mind, and and we draw comfort, you know, off each other. And so. So instead of like saying I was going to keep my leg or not, you know, this was 15 years after my injury. So I thought about it. I was like, I know my leg needs to be amputated. And I decided that my decision at this point is that am I going to go back to that dark place that I was when I was first injured and I couldn't even get out of bed in the morning or didn't want to get out of bed in the morning, sometimes didn't? Or am I going to focus on this marathon that I have in, in six weeks away and focus on my dreams and focus on my ability not my disability and so that's that's where what a different mental state i was later on and in fact i ended up even though my my leg was amputated i was still ended up doing the uh, marine corps marathon six weeks later in fact only about three or four weeks after i got out of the hospital and, you know i'm in a push racer so i don't need my legs but still just going through all that and then I'll, and then pushing a, a wheelchair 26.2 miles so um so it, it's definitely gone up and down but but, um, you know, I, I feel good about what I'm doing. The, um, my therapy is, is about helping others. That's, that's my mental therapy. And that's, I think that's what really uh, keeps me going. And, you know, I am, I, I feel I have a wonderful life. You know, I, I have setbacks every day, but, 
also learn I don't let the little things get me down because there's always things every day that my wheelchair hampers me or keeps me from doing, hinders me. And still places I can't get into because there's steps and curbs or the, the you know, I mean, if it's not concrete or solid ground and or if it's hilly, you know, those are some places I have a hard time getting to. So, um, but, but yeah, my mental state is, is so much better now. And, and I try to help that with others because there's, you know, 22 veterans a day that, that, um, you know, take their own life. Yes. And it's just, um, it's really sad. And in fact, the two guys that survived with me in, in my accident, both of them since then have taken their lives. So, um, Hard. you know, it's tough. You know, I, 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 I struggle every day, but, but uh, I'm definitely on a much better plane and much better mental state than I ever thought I could be in this situation, especially with the pain. It's not so much the wheelchair, but, I still deal with severe pain on a daily basis and keeps me a lot from sleeping different stuff. And that's, that's probably my biggest challenge, but, but it's all overcomable. And I, I wanted to talk about that a bit because again, I know I've said a couple of times that it's been two decades in that time. I want to talk about on a couple of levels um, in a sort of political way, um, or at least a, a social way. Have you noticed that this country has gotten better for those who are um, disabled or is it been the same? Is it actually, could it be possibly getting worse? It's hard to believe that it is, but, but perhaps you, you see it that way. What, what do you see in terms of how you've, you've evolved obviously, but is this nation evolving? Oh, definitely. I think it's definitely involved. I know from, you know, from 20 years ago till now, you know, there's, um, you know, we still have our challenges and there's still different things, but it seems like, um, people are, you know, like if, if, if there's a place that has like steps or something, you know, it's just like, you know, and it's a place that I want to go to, I'm not going to turn away. I'm like going to find someone or find some of the workers there. Hey, I want to go in this place. Can you help me? And they'll find someone and they seem real willing to do so. But also, you know, um, vehicles, that's a big thing. Uh, the way, you know, I, they told me I was going to have to get a minivan, you know, because I'm in a chair. And I said, there's no way. And, uh, there's no way I'm going to get one. And I didn't have to get one because, um, um, also wheelchairs are much better too. But as far as, uh, people view them, I think, um, I think people are not, you know, learned a lot more about, um, disabilities and, you know, much more than in the past. And, um, so yeah, I, I think things are, are much better. Like I said, I saw my challenges every day, but compared to where it was 20 years ago, I think it's, uh, we made leaps and bounds and not only, um, people understanding and knowing about, um, disabilities, but about, um, adaptive things too. For instance, like right now I have a four wheel drive wheelchair so I can go on the beach and mm-hmm. go on trails and places that, you know, that I thought I could, I could never do. You know, my truck has a crane on it that, that uh, picks up my wheelchair. So I, I transfer in the seat and my, I have a crane that picks up my wheelchair and puts it in the back of the cab of the truck. So, you know, things like that. It's, um, it's definitely improved quite a bit. Are you optimistic about the trajectory of paralysis research? Is there anything that could be changed in that way? Well, you know, when I, when I first got hurt, um, I was put on, a five-year temporary dis- disability. And I actually thought that in five years, 
you know, the technology was going to come along. I was going to be killed again. I was going to go back to my job. I mean, that's, that's the way I first thought. And it seemed like with the Christopher Reeve foundation and things that, you know, in, in less than 10 years, people were going to walk again. Well, 10 years came and went. And then I've seen stuff coming up the line and stuff. And I've had a couple of, um, experimental surgeries done, but, um, I decided that I'm just not going to put my focus on that too much anymore. I mean, a lot of people think, I bet the only thing you think about is walking again. And, you know, right now it's pretty much one of the, one of the last things I, I think about. So I know there's stuff coming down the pipeline. I hear some things, but I kind of just, um, I was getting a lot of hope and things like that, but it just, I don't know. It just kind of things came and went. It just didn't seem like it was what it's going to be. So I've kind of just kind of steered away from just, even learning about the advances and stuff right now. So I'm not really, not really up to date, but um, I know soon that I know something's going to come along. I really believe that, you know, before my time is up in this life that I will be out of the wheelchair. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, it's remarkable to think how far you've come, but then um, also, yeah, there's still quite a long way in terms of research that needs to happen. Um, I just wanted to shift gears for a second and back in your, your former career, I'm curious, uh, do you have any advice for those who might consider pursuing a career in special operations? Well, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's only, um, like in my job, there's only about 10, maybe 20% of people that make it go through weather school and special operations school. So, you gotta, you gotta be fully committed. I mean, it's, if it's kind of like, you know, I think I'll do that and I could probably get it through. Those are the guys that definitely won't make it. So if you want to go in special ops and, um, in any branch of the service, you gotta be a hundred percent committed. You gotta, I mean, you just have to be trained way and above. And, you know, the biggest thing is, and I'm not sure if you can teach it, but you gotta have mental toughness. Because a lot of times when you go through the training, you do stuff that your body says that you can't do. And, you, and you know, when you're going through trying to, to make it in those career fields, you got to know that when all the odds are against you and your body's telling you that it wants to quit, uh, you got to know for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your mission and for the sake of the guys and the lives of the guys that you're with, your teammates, that you got to be able to push through and get through it. So you definitely, definitely need to have mental toughness. You got to be in, in one of the best you got to be in the best shape of not only of your life, but of everyone around you. And you just got to have the, the, you know, the, the mental fortitude, just knowing that no matter what they put in front of me, I'm not going to quit. And if you think you lack in any of those, and I would, I'd probably just say, you know, um, save, save your effort and time and, and, and don't, and don't do it. But, you know, one thing is, is like, I like to do, I, you know, I talked to a lot of guys in my career field first, because they're all a little bit different, you know, so maybe you can get some advice from the actual group that you're going into, I think is very, very helpful too. But we have a, we have amazing military and our special operation guys are amazing. I've worked with some, I've worked with some amazing guys and, and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's awesome to see what some of the things that, that our military is capable of doing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, misconceptions out there about 
special operations. I think there's sort of a sense some of these, sometimes I read about people thinking that, you know, you've got to be a little crazy to do it because it's so out there, which I think is obviously a misconception. And, uh, and I think also the sense that you had to have been, you know, a champion athlete in your youth. And if you weren't that there's, there's no chance in, in being special ops. I, I think those would be considered misconceptions, right? Yes. I mean, there's some guys that, I mean, if you, if you look at a guy and like, you know, this guy is, is, um, Kelly spends, you know, every waking hour in the gym and, you know, he has that, that fitness and, and, you know, that type of, of, um, you know, the way his, his body's made up that muscular, you, you know, you see some of the guys and think like, Oh yeah, that guy's going to make it through. And, and sometimes that's the first guy that, you know, that, that quits or they can't make it. And, and you see some guys that, that, I mean, you have to be strong, but don't really have that build. It's, um, they do make it through. So, you know, it's amazing. You see the, the, the different guys, you know, on different teams and, and almost how different they are as far as looks and, and, you know, different things like that. But yeah, that's, that's definitely, you know, that, that's definitely, you, yes, you don't have to be a championship athlete and, and everything else, you know, to, to go into it. You just, you really just got to have the ability that, you know, you're, you're not going to quit. You're not going to give up and, and, and the ability to, to do the things that they're wanting you to do. And obviously it goes without saying that that mental toughness that you had from, your youth and your training and work has been something that's propelled you for your lifetime. Correct. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I'm thankful and think about every day, the way I was raised as far as my, my parents and the strictness they raised me and never let me quit to, to the things I did in sports and make it through sports and stuff and different things that definitely. And then, you know, and then going through the military and then going through the, the combat weather team, you know, the stuff I did, um, I don't think it could have trained me any better than being in my situation that I'm in right now, you know? So yeah, it's like, it's, I mean, I, I feel it, it's been a blessing, the training that I've had because I, I really don't believe I'd be at the situation I'm at right now if it wasn't for my past and the training that I've had in my past. And of course, you we get to know them a bit in the book, uh, or a good deal in the book. But how are your children doing? How old are they, and what are their stories at this moment? Oh, they're still great. So my my oldest is um, is is in college. Uh, my and he's still at home, but going to a, a local university. My my middle son is is also doing great. He's at a, uh, a technical school. And he's living down there about an hour and a half away from me and um, doing really, really well. And my youngest son is now a security force. He's a cop in the Air Force. He was stationed a couple of hours from me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of all three of them. They've done, a, they've done an amazing job. And, in fact, I think I'm going to see all three of them this weekend. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> That's tremendous. That's such a good. Yeah, I, I uh, could I could talk forever just about the kids, but I know that not everyone wants to hear that. But but yes, they're they're all doing great. They're all in their um, from from their twenty two to twenty five right now, and their ages. 
Well, what I loved about your story, and that's why I did want to, you know, at least touch upon the children a little bit and and uh, different aspects of your life, is that I, I feel like we really get inside of you and your soul. You know, we we realize there's a vulnerability there and a intimacy in what you're describing. So, like any good story, you know we are rooting for you um, as this goes along and and see the the setbacks but we also see the great triumphs that happen so it's uh i felt like i got to know you and the kids and obviously nepal um very well and uh it's uh, i think in our very very disturbing times especially this year it's books like these that let us step away from ourselves a bit and realize that, yeah, it's lousy in this pandemic and it's lousy that, that we're sacrificing so much. And obviously uh, things are far from ideal, but there are others who are encountering or have encountered things and have overcome them. And I feel like this is a parable, this book, a dog called hope for, for all of us. Yeah, I, I, I think I couldn't agree more. In fact, when um, Damien Lewis, a co-author, or the one that really, you know, wrote the story, when, you know, he contacted me and said, you know, I, he saw us, like, I think we're on the National Geographic called Amazing Dogs, and that's Nepal for you. He is amazing. And so he, he saw that air, actually, all the way in, in England and contacted me, and I, I told him, I, I really think you're, you're wasting your time. I just kind of felt like I was living average life. And then well, I'm glad he didn't listen to me. And, you know, he, he did such a great job because he, he talked about stuff that I had forgotten about or didn't dwell on. And, you know, and I didn't really want to talk about the really tough times. I just, that's just not me. And he told me, he says, you know, Jason, you, you know, for them to see the, how well you've accomplished things or, or the great times and how great they are, you got to show them the bad times too. So he does a great job of taking me through my struggles and, and he was really good about getting information out about uh, information from me that, that up until that point, I haven't told anyone. And, and we, you know, we got to be good friends through the process. And yeah, I think he did, he did an amazing job. And, and I, and I agree with you that, you know, the way things are going right now, this is a, a story about hope and about overcoming adversity. And I think it's a, it's a great story that, People will learn a lot from it and really be inspired from it. My last, that's my wishes. And it, it is. It's a wish that I think is, uh, and, and part of my wanting to do this podcast is to, you know, I've had on a few podcasts ago. I don't know if you're familiar with Rudy Reyes, who is, uh, you know, a, a force recon Marine who uh, was in one of the stars of Generation Kill. And he, he talked about how his grit and toughness is uh, how he's experiencing the pandemic. And, and I'm speaking to you. I, I feel like there's an important um, goal is to focus and study on people who have experienced adversity and have gotten through it. And that could be a, a, a lesson for all of us. Um, so that's part of, what I'm curious about and interested in. Uh, but I do have one last question and I think it's an important one. Uh, what do you think we as humans can learn from dogs? 
What are some of the aspects or qualities? Well, well, um, that's, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm learning from dogs, you know, or learning from, from my dog all the time. In fact, I, I truly believe that Nepal taught me how to be a better father and he taught me how to, you know, and, and, you know, I told you, I don't sweat the little things anymore. And that's with the dog, no matter how bad things are for them or what going, going on for them. If you just talk to them, love on their tails back and they're instantly in a great mood. You know, I think that's amazing how they can, they can be so positive, you know, all the time. And I think too, is that if, if we could greet people, like our dogs greet us when we come home. Of course, my dog goes with me everywhere. But, you know, wouldn't that be a great place? That, you know, your dog is so excited to see you when he comes home. If we could let other people know that how much we care about them and, and when we see them from time to time and stuff like that, I think that would be, you know, a wonderful thing. And, you know, always, you know I'm, I'm very fortunate because I could be in a really bad mood and I'm doing stuff and I'll see someone that I don't know and they see my dog and they get all excited when they see my dog and they and they smile and they're talking to the dog and stuff, even though most times they're not really supposed to, but you know, it, it doesn't uh, there there's sometimes it that, you know, I let it go, especially if it's you know, for, for good reasons I do. But you know, it's like if someone's around you and they start smiling, it, it makes you it's like you can't be in a bad mood when everyone around you is in a good mood. You know what I'm saying? So so when I'm with my dog and my dog makes everyone smile, it makes it makes me happy. It makes me smile and stuff too. So, but yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I wish I could have thought about that a little more because I know I'm missing so much, but because I know that I've learned so much from my dog, but, um, but yeah, I think, um, I think most people with pets and especially people with service dogs and definitely agree that there's a lot we can learn about dogs, a lot more we, we should learn from dogs. Right. Uh, I think that's, and I think all dog owners would, would, concur with you especially uh i um know several who are owners of labradors and would argue they're the best dog in the bunch <laughs> i'll leave yeah, that and you know what, yeah you know what i want to add something too and uh, i'll tell you this is one thing that, that nepal really taught me is that um so my dog is a service dog he wants to serve and so when i i've noticed that so when my dog, and the reason why they make such good service dogs is because that's what they like to do. And so when I drop something or I'm struggling and I need my dog to do something for me and I tell him to do something, unlike sometimes when I tell my kids or something else, you get that look and like, you know, okay, I'll do it. Or not a big deal, but my dog gets excited to help me. That's what he lives for. And so I can imagine if we get that excited about wanting to serve and help others as the dog does, I think that would make the world a much better place. <laughs> no question about it. I, I only wish that that we can get at least a fraction of that in our in our daily life. But that's that's remarkable. Absolutely. Well, Jason Morgan is the author of a dog called Hope. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, where all good books are sold. And please give it a read. Jason, thank you so much for joining me in the Nexus. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And we will be right back. Jason Morgan is an example of someone who persevered during an incredibly difficult personal experience and has a lot to show for it. 
I can't imagine what it must be like to be living with a disability such as his and then to be able to move forward in life, raising three accomplished children. As I mentioned in our interview, Jason is someone we can look toward in how to survive during the global crisis we are living through right now. Each of us has a crisis to endure in this global pandemic. Perhaps we have been furloughed at work and are not sure when or if we will go back to our job. Maybe our job has been eliminated completely. Perhaps your family is so afraid of COVID-19 that they no longer want in-person contact with you. Maybe you're lonely because no one wants to date for fear of contracting the disease. Maybe, like me, you've lost a loved one to coronavirus, with my father being one of the 200,000 who have passed from the disease so far this year. It's a lot. A lot for anyone to handle, and sadly, more than ever in the United States at least, we are alone. When I worried earlier in the year that I might lose my job, someone said to me, well, at least you'll know there are so many people encountering the same thing and you'd all be in it together. I grimaced when she said that. It sounds so absurd, because it is. Back in the 1930s in the Great Depression, there may have been more, much more of a sense of community, a we're all in this together mentality, a time when folks lent a hand and looked after their neighbor, or at least that's what our parents and grandparents told us. But maybe they were caught in a nostalgia trip and glorified the past as we are all wont to do. Maybe back then people felt as alone as we do now, isolated, keeping their head above water, making a wave when you can. How do we keep going? We learn to rely on ourselves, to believe in ourselves, and to find purpose even during the madness. Because don't get me wrong, these are maddening times. People are collectively losing their minds, acting out, and civil mores are being tossed out the window. Both political sides are guilty of this, too. Here in the Nexus, we are trying to navigate the choppiest waters in at least 50 years in this country. We're doing that by valuing every day and realizing life is for the living. No matter what is happening, there is a reason to move forward and hope for a better tomorrow. That's what Jason Morgan did, and that's why what he details in his book, A Dog Called Hope, should motivate us all. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Check out our newest destination, the brand new Amazon Music Audible podcast platform. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well.